So children, for example, when children are investigating potential play partners on the playground, they'll come up to a child, let's assume a child of roughly the same age, because that would be the most common situation. Maybe we're talking about kids who are four or five years old. And they'll throw out a play gesture that's rather simple, so maybe that a two-year-old could manage. And then if the person manages a proper response, then they throw out a little more sophisticated gesture. And if the person responds appropriately, then they ratchet up to just above their developmental level. And then they play like mad at that level. And that'll make them friends. Partly what they're testing for there continually is whether there's something approximating reciprocal altruism, right? It's tit for tat in the positive sense. And I would say that, well, we know there's actually a literature on this, which is quite interesting. This is also something very practical to know, and I'll get to another practicality here. So there have been psychologists who've done empirical investigations into what predicts the longevity of a relationship. And so here's one experiment that was conducted multiple times, and I believe this is very reliable data. So imagine you have the two partners in a marriage, each rate the number of encounters they have with their other partner a day. And it's kind of an arbitrary and subjective measure, but it doesn't matter. You might say, well, I talked to my wife eight times today. We had eight different interactions. And then you'd say, well, did you rate those for whether they're positive or negative? And then you can calculate a ratio of positive to negative. And then you can use the ratio to predict the longevity of the relationship. And the data show that if the relationship interactions fall below five positive to one negative, then the relationship deteriorates and is generally doomed. And so five to one, that's proportional of positive interactions, but we're wired so that negative interactions hurt us more than positive interactions help us if they are of the same magnitude. So for example, people will work harder to avoid a loss of $5 than they will to attain a gain of $5. And you might say, well, why is that? And the answer is you can be absolutely dead, but there's only so happy you can be. And so it's bare to err on the side of conservatism in the domain of negative emotion. But interestingly enough, if the interactions rise so that they exceed 11 positive to one negative, the relationship also deteriorates. And so what that suggests is that there's some, it's sort of like smiles with teeth. You want a fair bit of positive emotion and reflection from your partner, but you don't want them to be a naive, dependent pushover who's afraid to stand up for themselves. And so you want to, because you're a nasty, horrible human being, and now and then you poke your partner just to see if there's anything there, because that's what you're like. And if you find out there isn't, you'll run roughshod over them, and you think you won't, but you will, especially if they're very good at implicitly encouraging that, which dependent people sometimes are. So you do assess for reciprocity. And the basic rule is you want approximately equal re reciprocity in relationships that you want to maintain. Now, maybe, you know, you have enough additional resource to be the giver more often than receiver in some relationships, but I don't even think that really works that well with children. You know, I mean, you obviously have to take care of them, but it's not like they don't deliver the goods to you if you have a good relationship with them. And you want to, to some degree, to enforce that reciprocity. Now, you might say, well, what happens in relationships where that's impossible? And, well, I give you a practical piece of a suggestion on that front. And this is another thing you can do in your own household. This is so useful, man. If, if you get good at doing this, your life will get so much better. You can't believe it. Is watch the people around you. And whenever they do anything that you would like to see repeated on a regular basis, tell them exactly what they did in detail with be positive about it, obviously. <laughs> and just indicate that you noticed. And because I saw this when I was grading student essays, you know, I taught this seminar for a long time and I was trying to teach kids how to write. They were in their fourth year of university in the honors psych program. You'd think they'd bloody well already know how to write, but they didn't. And so 
I'd have them write a four-page essay on a given topic, and then they had to rewrite that to a six-page essay, and then they had to rewrite that to an eight-page essay. And the first essay I graded was only 5% of their grade, and I told them, I'm going to cut you into ribbons. But it doesn't matter, because it's, you know, 5% of your grade, and so they could tolerate that. And generally, by the third essay, they had written the best thing they'd ever written in their life, and they learned so fast it was unbelievable. But one of the things I noticed was that they did a little testing with the first essay. They'd hand in something, it was just like, God, formulaic, boring. They weren't in it at all, you know? There was nothing of the person in there. There was no thought. There was just the kind of psychobabble that they'd learned, especially if they were in faculties of education. And it was dry and dull and everything about it was wrong. And so those are hard to grade, right? What's wrong with my essay? The words aren't right. The phrases, they're not so good. They're not organized well into sentences. The sentences aren't sequenced well in the paragraphs. The paragraphs don't make a coherent argument and the entire thing is empty. But other than that, no problem. It was often easier just to rewrite those essays than to grade them. In any case, though, one of the things I did learn was that even in an essay like that, there is usually like one sentence or two sentences buried on like page three that was an actual thought and reasonably clearly stated and somewhat gripping, you know? It was like the person popped out from all the background rubbish and said, well, what about, what about this? <laughs> and if you saw that and checked it and said, hey, you hit the mark right there, the next essay would be like two-thirds that. And that was really fun to see. And then maybe by the third essay, maybe it was all like that. And then they were really thrilled. It's like, wow, I wrote this, you know? And it's sort of the culmination. Well, it was a fourth-year seminar. It was the culmination of their career as a psychology undergraduate. So that was great fun. But you can do that in your own household. If, 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 if the envious part of you isn't jealous of the revelation of the goodness of the person. And so here's the opposite tack, if you want to do this. So imagine that you're a man who's managed to attract a mate and he believes he's punched above his weight. So this woman is more attractive, let's say, more vivacious, more desirable than he deserves. So that's going to grate on his soul a fair bit, right? Partly because her shining casts a dim light on his lack of utility, let's say. You can imagine someone like that being prone to jealousy for obvious reasons. And so the best tack to manage in a situation like that, if you're that man, is to wait till your wife dresses herself up in a particularly attractive manner and then either fail to notice by occupying yourself with something trivial while she's attempting to gain your attention or by criticizing her directly for what she's just managed to do. And if you do that 50 times, let's say, you can be sure that she'll never reveal her attractiveness to anyone else for the rest of her life, including you. And you'll get exactly what you deserved. So that's the opposite of watching people carefully. Now, I learned this in part from Skinner, B.F. Skinner, the famous animal behaviorist, because he used all sorts of reinforcement contingencies to shape animal behavior. And Skinner was unbelievably good at this. He trained pigeons in World War II to guide missiles by pecking at photographs. So they could map the photographs onto the missile trajectory, viewing the territory underneath, and peck accurately enough to guide the missile to its destination. That was discontinued as the technology for guided missiles developed, but Skinner could do that. And, you know, we think pigeons, well, they're not that bright. It's like, they're smarter than you think, pigeons. That's why they can live in cities. That's not easy for a bird to pull off, you know. It's not their natural habitat. And so, but Skinner, although he would use punishment, technically speaking, which is the application of a certain amount of pain, or threat, which is the use of anxiety, but what he believed was most effective was reward. But it required a tremendous amount of 
attention. So, for example, if, if Skinner was trying to train a rat to climb up a little ladder and then across the ladder and then maybe do a pirouette and come down, which he could do with no problem, he'd just watch the rat, and then when it get close to the ladder, he'd give it a food pellet. Now, his rats were starved, by the way, down to three-quarters of their normal body weight, so they were pretty eager to work for food. It's not something you necessarily saw in the methodology section of the papers, but, well, I'm, I'm, and that's not a critique of Skinner. It's just an indication of how simplification takes place in laboratory experiments. But in any case, he'd wait for the rat to get near the ladder and give it a food pellet. And soon the rat would be hanging around the ladder quite a lot. And then now and then, just more or less randomly, the rat would put a paw up on the ladder. Food pellet. Well, then the rat would hang around the bottom of the ladder with paw up. Well, if he did that continually through observation, he could get the rat to do pretty much anything that you could imagine a rat could do, and then maybe some things you couldn't imagine. And this isn't a manipulative technique, by the way, although it can be used that way. It's not effective unless you do it with a certain degree of wisdom. You want to think, well, what do you want in your house? How about peace, tranquility, happiness, and humor? Something like that. It's not a bad first pass approximation. And you gotta get that in your head. It's like, do you want that or do you want the delights of endless martyrdom? Because you have to make a choice and you might think, I wouldn't pick martyrdom. It's like, really? Really, you wouldn't, eh? You'd pick peace and happiness and humor, and so everywhere you go, that's all you're ever surrounded with. It's like highly improbable. So don't be so sure you're aiming up. But if you can orient yourself in that direction, and carefully, and knowing full well what the hellish alternative is, because you need to know that, then you can watch and see, well, when? When is this manifesting itself in the people around me? And then you can tell them in detail, I noticed, son, I noticed. Today, we're having a discussion at dinner, you know, and you made a spectacularly witty remark right at the right time. And it was provocative, but not annoying. And so, good work. And then the kid thinks, oh my God, I noticed. And then he's like twice as funny the next day, and maybe not in some unbearable manner. And that really works, it really works. But like I said, you have to quell the envy that would otherwise beset you, and you have to want to aim up and then you have to not be jealous of the other person's goodness and you have to be extremely attentive but man as a transformation technique even in extraordinarily difficult relationships which goes back to your point I, there isn't anything I know of that's more effective and I've been working with moderate Democrats in the United States recently and with a number of Republicans and suggesting that to the Democrats that when the Republicans do something that isn't absolutely malevolent and stupid in your opinion you might want to just say Say something like that's not as bad as it could have been you know something at least and the same for the Republicans in relationship to the Democrats and that because it's also one of the ways that you can reduce the tit-for-tat proclivity right you want to give the devil his due especially when you're not actually talking to the devil but just the person who's sitting across you let's say in the house and people that's another issue I mean if you want people to appreciate having you around learning how to listen that is a skill that is absolutely unbeatable and this technique of summer to their satisfaction, that works like a charm. You know, you might be a little awkward when you first try it and might feel a little manipulative because you're not that good at it, but if you get expert at it and you have the greatest conversations with everyone, you know, I had people in my clinical practice who were extraordinarily impaired intellectually and suffering from all sorts of assorted pathologies in addition to that, and if I was listening to them properly, they were as fascinating as anybody I had on the, say, more able and competent end of the spectrum. And you learn so much because there is nothing that people won't tell you if you listen. It is absolutely amazing what people will tell you. And so quickly, they'll reveal things they didn't even know about themselves. And they need to know those things often. They've been hidden for years. It's so rewarding. And then this, this use of 
attentive reward. That's also, it's fun in a game-like sense once you learn to play it, because you're watching, you think, I'll just wait, this person's gonna do something good sooner or later. It's like, pat, good work. And people are so thrilled that that little manifestation of goodness in their heart that managed to sneak out past their cynicism and boredom was recognized. It restores their faith in what's good inside them. It really does. It's unbelievably powerful. And so that can work if you're embroiled in a difficult relationship, you know, and you can't escape easily, or maybe you can't escape on moral grounds. That listening, that helps a lot. You might have to listen a lot. But that use of judicious reward, man, that's a powerful technique. I'm going to describe that relationship because one of the things that I want to describe to you is how you determine how upset you should be when something anomalous happens. Because it's really hard to figure out, right? So, because, well, you see this often, especially if you're unsophisticated in, in dispute settlement with an intimate partner. Every little bump in the relationship is the potential dissolution of the entire relationship. That's actually why people get married, you know, just so you know. Because this is built into marital vows. I'm not leaving. Ever. No matter what. It's like, okay, well that definitely puts a boundary around our arguments, right? Because I can't say, every time you manifest one of your flaws, which you're likely to do just as often as me, well, enough of this. It's like, that's horrible, man. If your whole life is, well, every time you get out of line, I'm, I'm out of here. It's like, how the hell are you? First of all, you're not going to admit to ever doing anything wrong. Second, you're going to be on your, you're like a, like a scared cat the entire relationship because, well, who knows, it could just come to an end at any moment. It's like, you know, people say, well, if, you're, if the possibility of divorce is open, it makes you free. It's like, yeah, that's what you want. You want to be free, eh? Really? Really? So you can't predict anything. That's what you're after. It's a vow. And it says, look, I know that you're trouble. Me too. So we won't leave, no matter what happens. Well, that's a hell of a vow, but that's why it's a vow, right? That's why you take it in front of a bunch of people. That's why it's supposed to be a sacred act. It's like, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Everything is mutable and changeable at any moment. Well, go ahead. You live, you live your life like that and see what you're like when you're 50. Jesus, it's dismal. Two or three divorces, your family's fragmented. You've got no continuity of narrative. It's, and it's not good for the kids, not by any stretch of the imagination. And so, it's a form of voluntary enslavement, I suppose, but it's also equivalent to the adoption of a responsibility. And there's more to it than that. If you can't run away, then you can solve your problems. Because it might be, okay, well, I'm stuck with you. So how about we fix things? Because the alternative is we're going to be in a boxing match for the next 40 years. That's the alternative. So, and you think you're going to fix problems without something like that hanging over your head? There isn't a chance. You'll just avoid them because that's what people do. It's really hard to, to solve problems, especially in a relationship. We're having a fight and I find out that it's, you know, because you're, you were abused by your uncle when you were five or some goddamn thing. You know, it's like, it's very frequent that that sort of thing happens. You, there, there's the partner, your partner's, you know, manifesting some weird anomalous behavior. You just can't make heads or tails of it. It doesn't seem related to what you're doing at all. They don't want to talk about it. And so as soon as you bring it up, they get mad. And then you bring it up again, they even get madder and they tell you that you're not going to talk about that or they're going to leave. And so maybe you're really, really persistent because you're kind of a son of a bitch and then they break down and cry. 
you know, and then they have this horrible memory that comes flooding forward that's completely, you don't know what to do with it, and then you have to sort it out. So you think you're going to do that unless there's a good reason? You have to know, we better sort this out or we're going to be carrying it around for the next 40 years. That maybe is enough motivation so you'll actually try hard to solve a problem. It's a lot easier to say, well, <laughs> sorry, we're not going there. But then, good, you'll have it every day. Every day, every goddamn day for the rest of your life. Now, one of the ways to protect yourself against something like that is like, don't have one plan. Right? If you're going to stake yourself on something, you should throw a couple of alternative scaffolds up beside you so that you have somewhere to go. You want to be a doctor. Okay. Well, you could be a nurse. It's like it's not a doctor, but it beats cutting your throat. You're still doing 80% of what you wanted to do. So you want to, and you want to think about this during your whole life, man. If you're going to take a high risk, you want to scaffold yourself in other areas so that if it fails, you don't, the bottom doesn't drop out and you die. And it's also very much worth thinking about with regards to setting up your life in general. It's like, if you concentrate solely on your career, you can get a long way in your career. And I would say that that's a strategy that a minority of men preferentially do. That, that's all they do. They work like 70, 80 hours a week. They go flat out on their career. They're staking everything on the small probability of exceptional status in a narrow domain. But it's, it's hard on them. They don't have a life. It's very difficult for them to have a family. They don't know how to take any leisure activity. Like they get very one dimensional. Now, it may be that that unidimensionality is the price you have to pay to be exceptional at one thing, right? Because if you're going to be something like a genius level mathematician and you want to do that for, or a scientist say, it's like you're in your lab, you're in your lab all the time, you're working 70 hours a week or 80 hours a week, you're smart, you're dedicated, you're unidimensional, and that's how you get to beat all the other people who are doing that. It's the only way. But the problem is you don't get a life. Now, if you love being a scientist and you have that kind of focus of mind, well, first of all, you're a rare person, and second, you're going to pay for it. But fine, more power to you. But, but it's, a, it's a risky business to do that. You sacrifice a lot for it. You know, and I would say most often, if you're speaking about having a healthy life, that isn't what you do. You spread yourself out more, so you, know, you have a family, you have some things that you do outside of work that are meaningful to you and useful. You, you have a network of friends. Um, well, that, that, those three things alone, or four things alone, are plenty to keep you well-oriented. And then if one of those things collapses, you know, everything doesn't go. Now, the, the price you pay for that is the more you strive to optimize that balance, the less likely you are to be fantastically successful at any single one of them. But you might have a very, you know, if you consider your life as a whole, that might be a winning strategy. One of the things Carl Jung said, I really liked this. He thought that men went after perfection and women went after wholeness. So they're different, they're different value, they're, di they're different, there's something different at the top of the value hierarchy. So perfection would be stake it all on one thing and, and look for radical success. Not, all, not that all men do that, because they don't, but we're, we're talking about extremes, at, at least with the, regards to the men that do that. The wholeness idea is more like, well, I want, I want, it's like I want one thing in my life to be 150%, or I want five things in my life to be 80%. Well, 
there, there's a lot more richness in a life where you have five things operating at 80%, but you're not operating in any of, at any of them at 150%. So, and I really believe this because I've watched men and women go through their careers now for a long period of time. And one of the things that, there's lots of things that produce this. But one of the things that I've noticed is that mostly women in their 30s bail out of unidimensional careers. They won't do them. They won't, they won't put in the 80 hours a week that they would have to put in in order to dominate that particular area. And it isn't, the reason that they won't do it is because they decide it's not worth it. And no wonder, because why would that be worth it? You, you have to ask yourself that. It's like, well, you want to be an outstanding scientist. It's like, okay, really? Really, that's what you want, because that means that's what you do. Because you're competing with other people, you know, they're smart, they're hardworking, and if you want to be at the top, you have to be smarter and work harder than any of them. And working hard means working long hours. I mean, it also means working diligently, but in, in the final analysis, it's all, also an additive issue. If I'm smart and hardworking and I can crank out for 70 hours a week, and you do it for 30, it's like, in two years, I'm so far ahead of you, you will never, ever catch up. So, anyways. And I think partly, maybe part of the reason, too, that women are oriented that way more than men. I think there's two reasons. One is, socioeconomic status does not make women more attractive on the mating market, but it does make men more attractive. And the second is, women's time frame is compressed. Right? Because guys can always say, well, I'll have kids later. And they can say that till they're like 80. Whereas women, it's like, no way, man, you've got, to get it, you've got to get it together by the time you're, let's say, 40, but really probably by 35, but definitely by 40, because otherwise it ain't happening. And that's bloody dreadful. Like, the most unhappy people you ever see, hmm, no. <laughs> no. One of the common routes to extreme unhappiness is to want children and not have them. I wouldn't recommend that. You know, you see couples who are in their 30s. One couple in three over the age of 30 has fertility problems. That's defined as inability to conceive after one year of trying. One in three. So it's worth thinking about because people are very, very unhappy if they want to have kids and then they can't. Man, you're in the medical mill for 10 years if that's, if that's what happens to you.